This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who does the column in the New York Post. I do this broadcast every Sunday on WABC from 1 to 2 with my usual scintillating, semi-brilliant interviews or talks or bits of information, like... I'll talk today with Jenny Karchman, who directed my four-part documentary series called Gossip. But first, let's do a little gossiping. I can't remember which stories I've told you before or what I haven't, so I'm just going to rattle on. But first, what I want to do, wearing masks, distancing six feet apart, no hugging, no smooching, it's the perfect time to remember a first kiss like Usher's first smooch. He says it was at age 12. But he dealt with seconds because she also kissed his friend. Beyonce says her first was in her teens, and she was last in her crowd to do so. Jessica Alba, she was age 10. She claims she did it so the boy would pick her for his baseball team. Listen, what can I tell you? Drew Barrymore, age 10. The boy, age 11. Nicholas Cage remembers it was in summer camp. He said, I was 11, maybe 12. The bitch broke my heart. I remember her to this day. Sandra Bullock, he got his little best friend to go on all fours, and he stood on his pal's back to get up high enough to kiss me through my bedroom window. What can I tell you? I don't think anything like that's happened to her since. Tori Spelling, she says it happened to me in sixth grade. Tyra Banks, complete disaster. I freaked out, she says. It reminded me of a worm. Monona Ryder, I was 12. It was in my class. It was awful. I can't even talk about it. It was a long time before I even ever allowed another one near me. Denise Richards. He'd had his two front teeth removed the day before. (laughs) Must have sucked her lip in. Sharon Stone. I was playing darts in the basement of my parents' home. He kissed me really kissed me. It was like, wow, (laughs) like, whoa, I was only 15. Charlize Theron, he had braces. It was in the backyard. His name was Nicky. And I'm like, listen, you want to do it? Should we do it? So we're standing there arguing about it for so long. (laughs) It was just awful. Okay. Wait, I have other things to talk to you about. Thanks to whoever watched Gossip, the documentary on me, Ron Howard's four succeeding Sunday 8 p.m. hour episodes on Showtime. Here are some, I felt like taking some unknown scenes of having done this column for 40 years. I did some on TV. I'm going to do some now. Remember Imelda Marcos, then Philippines First Lady? She gave a formal gala in my honor. I flew to Manila. That's a long trip. After smiling, posing, 
shaking hands, chatting, being charming, I took the guest of honor's chair alongside then-President Ferdinand Marcos. I was fated, saluted, adored, but I didn't know it. I'd fallen fast asleep on the president's shoulder, my face flat across his epaulets. I can't tell you how embarrassing it was. I've had a lot of lousy things. Barbara Walters invited me on a world cruise. It started in Rome. A doctor prescribed Ambien for the flight, five milligrams. His nurse incorrectly prepped ten milligrams. The CDC is following. Never so the story is before. not over yet. I think so people need to understand that. When I this is not the end of the story. Five, on Wednesday, you said in an interview, quote, if another. they say... We don't think there's wow. enough data to I do a booster, out. then so be it. I, I think out. that would be a mistake, to be honest with you. So on Wednesday, you said it would be a mistake. So, they got but now you're saying you don't think it was a mistake? They strapped me in the wheelchair, and they rolled me up the gangplank. Barbara Walters was so embarrassed, and I was out for two days. Now about too many interviews. Phone calls, corrections, additions, complaints deletions and pains in the behind, and editors-in-chief who you want to get rid of. I've been overstressed on deadlines. Once I was so overstressed, I flushed VIP credentials down a john and threw my bank's single-copy private key into a mailbox. Also, halfway through interviewing Sir Michael Caine, I had absolutely no idea what the hell his name was. I'll be back in a minute. Talk Radio 77 WABC. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, I'm going to talk with Jenny Karchman. Director, producer, who knows what, Emmy nominee. She works with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's Imagine Entertainment, and they've grabbed more statues than the Wax Museum has dummies. Jenny Karchman was director, producer on Gossip, my four-part documentary series that was on Showtime four Sundays in a row and just ended last weekend. So, Jenny... When did all these documentaries, which are now all over us, when did they become so important? They've always been important. They've been important forever. They've gotten more popular as we've gotten more streaming outlets. We've got Netflix. We've got Amazon. We've got HBO Max. We've got you name it. They've got a streaming platform. Streaming platforms need content. And that's why they're even more popular than they were. Well, it seems that everybody gets a documentary now. Even my big joke, even orthodontists are getting documentaries. If you, if you, if you take a corn off a guy's foot, he gets a documentary. What is the purpose of making them? Because it's cheaper than cranking out a movie? It is cheaper than cranking out a movie. That's true. I think the purpose of making them is to appeal to as many different people as possible, as many different audiences as possible. If you like sports, there's a sports documentary. If you like music, there's a music documentary. If you like art, there's an art documentary. If you like pets, there's one about dogs. You name it, you've got built-in interest and an audience whose niche is that topic. So you know who you're appealing to. 
but we didn't have that before. We weren't, we're now lousy with them. We are stuck on our computers. We are stuck on our phones. We are stuck in front of a screen. First of all, we've all been inside of pandemic, so we've all been in front of the television and computers for the last almost two years. There is so much time spent in front of these devices. These devices are catering to audiences who want to watch, who want to stay on, and that's what they are designed to do. Is it not because you guys who do this, you, you sort of get multiple awards each year instead of spending millions and billions making one Cockamamie film? No question. The awards are a big piece of documentary filmmaking. And now documentary series are also a big piece of the awards uh, uh, circuit. So, yes, documentaries are cheaper to make than fiction programming. Documentaries are um, uh, popular because they're now series so that they, they call it sticky, where you make an episode and you want to make it sticky so that people stick to it so they watch the next one and the next one and the next one. That's a term in the industry. It's all designed to keep your eyeballs on that particular channel, on that subject. And then when you get a really popular one, award season takes off. Explain sticky. I don't quite, I've never heard the term. Yeah, I hadn't either until the world of streaming came to us. Sticky means that you want to stick the viewer's eyeballs to the screen. So if you finish one episode, how are you going to get them to watch episode two? How are you going to get them back? Do you create a, um, a, a teaser to episode two that's very... Uh, luscious kind of a, a, a trailer essentially that has all the good stuff in it so that people stay and continue to watch and the idea is you're sticking to the channel does it actually work i think it works if you if you create it the right way sure well if a movie costs multi-millions and some docu-series about some who cares you can make them for peanuts you can it's it's like it's like you guys are just high-priced organ grinders. It's like a monkey doing anything. I think I'm a little bit more talented than a monkey. Well, I wouldn't go that far, and I know you. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's true. It's a lot less expensive. Your crews are—look, we came to your house all the time. We were like four or five people. If you have a motion picture, you've got 200 people. It's a lot less expensive. It's not union, so you don't have to worry about overtime, and you don't have to worry about lunch breaks, and you, you know, it's it's a whole different industry. It's much cheaper to make. It's also, you know, for, for me, it's more interesting. It's real life. It's real people. I enjoy watching them. I enjoy making them because I'm connecting with you. I, I met you. I didn't meet an actress who's going to play you. I met you. Before we go into all the others, why did you guys descend on me? I'm going to blame Sarah Bernstein, who works at Imagine, who's the um, co-president of Imagine. Imagine was wanting to make something. That was with, Ron Howard and Brian and Brian. They yeah. wanted to make something with the New York Post. They've been talking to the New York Post for a while about what is something we could do with this great institution. The New York Post, I don't know what their answer was. I wasn't involved in those conversations. All I know is I got a phone call saying, would you like to do a series about the New York Post and Cindy Adams? And I said, Cindy Adams? 
who's Cindy Adams? Not who is she? I know who you are, but who 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 are we going to? What are we going to learn about Cindy Adams? Who? What? The question is always, who is this person? Who who is this person going to be on screen? And I jumped at the chance. What does that mean? Who is this person going to be on screen? Meaning, how am I going to tell the story of Cindy Adams? Who who is Cindy Adams? How do we unpeel the onion of Cindy Adams? You can say Cindy Adams is a gossip columnist, but really, what's the essence of Cindy Adams? That's what I mean. Well, I still don't understand. Why did you descend on me? You told me to. No, I, 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 I love New York. I love New York history. I love New York stories. I love journalism. I love anything to me that's iconic New York. To me, you are iconic New York. I think the post is fun. I think it's funny. I think it has a personality. I think New York City at the time when we started the series, which was 1976, had more personality than anything. And I would jump at the chance to go back into those archives, to look at that footage, and also to get to know you. Can you tell which one works and which one doesn't? Or past tense, can you tell which one worked and which one didn't? When you say which one, what, what do you mean? Not me. I don't mean me. In in the pantheon of all these documentaries, did you know which ones were so successful and which ones were not, and why? Well, the ones that I think, I mean, there's different kinds of success, correct? There's financial success, the ones where people rush to the box office. March of the Penguins was a huge success. Did I love it? I enjoyed it, but would I say it was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen? Eh. Another kind of success, I mean, Gimme Shelter, Albert Maisel's film about the Rolling Stones, to me is one of the greatest films ever made. It's about a concert, and a stabbing happens in the concert, and he happens to film it. It is amazing. It is amazing. Amazingly put together. I think that's one of the most successful documentaries. It's They appeal to all different people and all different walks of life. What's the criteria of a good documentary to make it, in your opinion? I think a good documentary is a documentary that tells you something you didn't know, that gives you access to a world you would normally not have access to, that allows you to learn something not just about the subject, but about yourself, where you're watching something and you relate. You have empathy or you feel. You could hate it, but at least you're feeling I'm talking to Jenny Karchman, who was the director on the four-part documentary, Gossip, which featured me and was on for four weeks in a row as of last week. You told Variety that Ron Howard said about me, this is your quote, Wow, she's such a character. What does that mean before I throw a rock at you? What does that mean? She's a character. She has a very unique space in the world. That sounds good. What does it mean by what does character? It mean? What does it mean? You know what it means. No, you tell me. Oh, my God. It means that you walk a certain way and you talk a certain way and you address people a certain way and you're unafraid. I mean, that's the character that I've seen in you. You know, you can meet characters who are shy. You're not shy. Oh, okay. I thought I was always so terribly shy. Mm. Why did you call it gossip and not Cindy Adams? We went back and forth about calling it gossip starring Cindy Adams and gossip. 
I personally liked Gossip starring Cindy Adams. And that's it? That's the end of your conversation? I'm not going to talk to you much longer because I don't, I'm starting not to like you. Down at the riverbed, in the old days, are hieroglyphics on Egyptian walls with Sadie doing it to Irving. Hasn't gossip been always since the beginning of time? Yes, you taught me that. You told me that. Yes, I know that when I am sitting with someone and I don't know them and I'm uncomfortable, the easiest way to make things a little more comfortable is to say something about something that I know that maybe they don't know about a person we know in common. Or maybe it's even, you know, finding out some information about asking a question that might reveal something about that person that might be a little bit secret. In other words, when you leave me, Big Mouth, you are now going to drop some stuff about me to someone else. Is that correct? That is so correct. I wish, <laughs> I wish I had good juice. Are you allowed to say bitch on, tele- on, on the air? Bitch? Okay. <laughs> I'm told I could say it. So that's what I just thought. Okay. How does a hotshot movie company with all its awards and, and I mean, Ron Howard has won everything. How does he decide which of the millions of humans to descend upon to make this kind of a thing? I wish I knew the answer to that. I'll well, make up an answer. Okay. Well, the answer is what are what do what do people like? What do they want to watch? What do they care about? I I honestly truly wish I had the answer to that because there is this is this is not answering your question, but I'm just going to say this because this is really popular right now. True crime. Everybody wants a true crime story. Everybody wants murder. They want sex. They want it's tabloid. They want stories that are going to take you eight episodes into a crazy story. And you may or you may not find out who the killer is at the end, but they just want all those details. Something about our our attachment to that kind of escape and that kind of world where you're not you're not um, thinking about your own life you're so engaged in somebody else's those are the kind of stories people are looking for so tell me about some of the celebrities you work with well celebrities so or yes. oh I wish I could so I made a film about Fran Lebowitz I made what? a film about Ed Koch it's all New York people it's all New York people you never did anything from Rhode Island. You never didn't. You never went anywhere. What do you mean? I'm just New York people. That's all you oh, do. Oh, oh. I mean, yeah. I'm. I'm New York. New York. Yeah. I don't. I don't care about. Rhode Island. All right. So tell me about Ed Koch. Tell me about Dolly Parton. Tell me about somebody. Ed Koch was amazing. He was amazing. He was 90 years old. I was following him around. We were going. He. This was the election of Andrew Cuomo whose office is across the street. Yes. <laughs> we were, um, we, he was campaigning for governor, you know, for, for the governor's election. So we followed him that year. He was the most gracious, the most uh, funny, and actually um, led us into everything. He led us into everything. He died the day the film came out. That's how bad the film was? <laughs> kind of. I loved the film. I loved the film. I really loved him. But, yeah, exactly. He was a, he, he gave us a gift of promotion, I say. So does uh, 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 um, somebody like that, a politician, get as much excitement out of a reader or a watcher as a celebrity? 
as no, a Dolly Parton? No, that- no, no. I mean, I would say probably Donald Trump is different. He was a celebrity before he was a politician. Uh, but no, celeb- everybody loves celebrities. They love celebrities. Well, mine was four parts. What makes the decision? This will be a three-parter, a five-parter, a four-parter. What? It, that's a good question. I, I, I'd like to have a good answer. Oh my Bridget. God! See, I get, I I'd, get, I get pummeled. Oh my God! I miss you so much. Say something. Okay. Why, so mine was four parts. Why? We took the decades. We took the decades. So, Murdoch. I decided the story was going to start in 1976. I went from 76 to the 2000s. Four decades. It's actually five, but we did four. We did two and one in the last episode. So that's that's why it's budget, it's schedule, it's what what they think is going to be most watchable. I'm not a network. Do some not work out after you've started? Oh, of course. Like, tell me. Gosh, I mean, you're always in a phase of development in the beginning where you are out in the world and you are gathering information and you're talking to people. I've done so many where you're starting to film. I, I was working for Martin Scorsese and I was working, I've worked on maybe four or five projects with him where we were just developing. We create all kinds of binders and we shoot with people. They may not work out for whatever reason, not because of the subject and and the director, but just because maybe the timing's not right or it's too hard to whatever. There are a million reasons, a million reasons. You're doing one now on sex. Could you please tell me about sex? Since I'm not having it at the moment, I would like to hear about others who are doing it. Well, here's the deal. There was a pandemic. People were trapped. Go ahead. Go. There was a pandemic and people were trapped inside. So single people or people who are not um, cohabitating with a partner were not having so much sex. Now they're having lots of sex. It's a free-for-all out there. So I'm in the lives of a lot of people who are who are connecting, shall we say. What does that mean? They're having what are you sex. Doing? What are you doing? You're, sh- you're photographing them doing it? What are you doing on this thing called sex? Well, you have to say something or get, out, get off of my microphone. Tell me what they're doing. I am looking at their relationships. I am looking at how people come together. I'm looking what attracts people to other people. I am looking at what they do in the bedroom. How close do you get? Very. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but you're not saying anything. No, because I asked you not to talk about it. Oh, I did. Do, do I remember? Do it. Okay. How did you? How did you define gossip? Mine was called gossip. How did you define it? What is gossip? Gossip is is, is power. It's sharing information. That might be a secret, and it is it is receiving information that might be a secret, and it is sharing it again. It is power. It is it secrets are power. Okay, I'm about to get rid of you, but I would like to know: Are any subjects tough to work with? Again, you're going to get silent. You you are opening up a minefield. Well, say something. Well, do you want me to say? Was I difficult to work with? <laughs> I'm going to go there. Cindy, you were so difficult. You were so difficult. You hung up on me so many times. Yes, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm about to do it right now. Okay, one more question since you're useless right now. How hard was it during lockdown pandemic to do this? Oh, Cindy, it was horrible. It was horrible. It Okay. 
you were not going anywhere. I was not going anywhere. No one wanted to leave their apartments. You and I would talk every single week. I would call you. I would ask you how you were doing. You said, not okay. I'm scared. I'm frightened. Everyone was scared and frightened. I was worried about you because you were, you know, I, I don't know who's coming by. I don't know who's visiting. We sent you babkas. We sent you bagels. We sent you candy. We sent you flowers. No jewelry. Oh, I'm so sorry. We sent you a sweater. <laughs> we, um, I, I felt, I will tell you something. It was very difficult, extremely difficult. I will say that the time I spent those nine months of calling you and getting to know you on the phone, not even filming you, was actually critical. It was critical. Had I not had that time, I don't know that I would have known you as well as I feel like I do now. But also, I might not have been as comfortable with you as I feel like I am with you now. Good. Now that you're comfortable, get the hell off. You, you told me nothing. You gave me no juice. Oh you're, you're now temporarily my friend, and I've had enough with you. Jenny Karchman, get away from me. You say this to me all the time. <laughs> All the time. This time I mean it. And I still love you. That's the thing. I must love abuse. Goodbye, and I love you, I love you. Thanks. Talk Radio 77 WABC. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, the station has now made a few bucks, and now I would like to run off at the mouth. I got a matter I would like to discuss. People once sent a dime to President Roosevelt to underwrite developing a polio vaccine. His march of dimes raised millions. Over 35,000 a year were afflicted in the 40s and 50s. In 1952, it was 60,000 children. In 1955, we got the vaccine. Church bells rang. Loudspeakers everywhere trumpeted its arrival. Today, 35 million U.S. reported cases and over 573,000 deaths is what we have. We have a COVID-19 vaccine. And you know what? It has become a political statement. Okay, I've done that. Now I'm going to tell you some gossip. I'm in the mood to just burble on. Noriega. Remember Noriega? He was a general for 20 minutes in Panama. Then he went to jail. I was supposed to interview him. I flew down on a plane. The plane arrived and the airport went black. They turned off all the lights. Nobody was allowed in or out of the airport. I was there with a photographer. It was pitch black late at night. I was terrified. In the blackness, up came a staff of soldiers with rifles. They surrounded me and put me and my photographer in a black car. They didn't speak English. I speak some Spanish, but they were not speaking English. I didn't know who they were. They didn't speak to me. We were thrown into a car and went down a highway that was all dark, no lights. And we stayed in that for a half hour until we got to wherever it was General Noriega was 
waiting for me. Let me tell you, doing all of these jobs that look so glamorous and such fun, in some cases, they're terrifying. You don't know what you're going to find. Here's a fun story at the other end of my Noriega experience. I had done a series of stories with the general. The day that he was sentenced to prison, I was there. As the days go on and the years go on, he wanted to make a phone call to me. When someone is in prison and the Department of War is watching over him, you cannot get a phone call in to him, nor can he get a phone call out to you. You have to go through his lawyer to get permission. Then he has to go to the Department of War. Then the Department of War has to go to the warden. Then the warden has to go to the person in charge of the cell block. Then the cell block person goes to Noriega. The uh, time was fixed that General Noriega wanted to speak to me. This was when he thought he was going to be released. He sent word through his lawyer he wanted to talk to me. We fixed a time, but I was home, but he couldn't get to the telephone in time. So the days went by, and we went through the same rigmarole again. Then he said, sent word, he will call me three o'clock on Tuesday. Three o'clock Tuesday came, and he had called me at two o'clock. I wasn't home. This went on for about four months. Finally, finally, I am sitting home, and the phone rings, and it's General Noriega calling from prison. My dog, Jazzy, a little Yorkie, was on my lap. The general says, Cindy, it is the general. And I said, oh, honey, I am so eager to talk to you. Tell me, what is it you want to tell me? At this point, my dog, Jazzy, jumped on the buttons of the phone and cut him off. And I never, ever heard from General Noriega again. I got other stories. I've gone through a lot. Let me tell you a Joan Rivers story. Ten years ago, I had an appendicitis. I was in the hospital. I was there for some days. The day I came out, I had nurses. I had people with instruments in my arm. I had people watching over me in the house. And Joan Rivers showed up, and she brought with her her documentary. And she sat there and made me watch her on her documentary while I was near dying. That was Joan Rivers. I'll tell you some other stories about Joan Rivers. These are things that nobody else knows. Joan Rivers was one of the closest friends I ever had in my life. We only lived a couple of blocks away from one another. She had a um, um, magician check her apartment before she moved in to make sure there were no evil spirits. Joan Rivers and I spent a weekend in Williamsburg 
wear the colonial Williamsburg, where they're still wearing the schmatas from the 1800s. She booked us hotel rooms. Joan Rivers piled a couch against the door when we went to sleep. And on the floor, she placed newspapers so that if anyone stepped in, we would hear them crinkle. She was that paranoid. Why was she so paranoid? Because Joan Rivers believed in ghosts. She believed strongly in spirits. She didn't sleep that night, and she told me, in the morning, we are checking out of here. Why are we checking out, Joan? We just got here to Williamsburg. Why are we checking out? And this is what she said to me, and you're not going to believe it, but I will swear if I had a Bible here. Joan Rivers said to me, there are spirits here. I feel odd beings here. The closet, this is her exact quote, and I have printed this years ago. Joan Rivers said to me, the closet was moving towards me. I said, Joan, I think you're you're on something. What what are you talking about? She says, Don't argue with me. There are spirits here. I feel the spirits. The closet is moving towards me. And she made us check out. And we checked out. Another Joan Rivers story. And then I'll get on to something else. But all of a sudden I'm thinking Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, wherever she was in the world, wherever, at 8 a.m. in the morning, she had her hair done and her makeup done. If she was in the jungles of Chile and there was nothing there, she would have had a makeup person and a hairdresser because her assistant would have found them. They would have called the moving picture people or the television people in the city. They would have booked. She got her hair done and her makeup done every single day of her life, wherever she was in the world. I said to her, what the hell are you doing this for? You're in Chile. She says, you never know who will recognize me. That was Joan. Joan Rivers. Ah, Hillary, I'm remembering stories. For whatever the reason, they're coming out of my brain as I sit here in front of the microphone. Hillary, there's only one Hillary. The day of my husband's funeral, a dog was sent in as a gift to me so that I wouldn't be alone. I'd never had a dog sent in that I didn't know. I had people in the house who were paying respects, and I suddenly had a stray dog that was sent in. It came in a Cadillac limousine from Connecticut with a note on it saying, this will now give you comfort. I didn't know the dog. I didn't know it was coming in. And I had a hundred people in my house paying respects and I had a stupid dog that I didn't know what to do with. The dog couldn't eat chopped liver, and the dog wasn't going to eat a pastrami sandwich 
which is what the caterer had brought in for people. And here I had a dog. I was holding the dog in my arms when the phone rang. It was Hillary Clinton. The first call I got, and she said, Are you okay? I said, I'm not so sure. I got you, the first lady on the phone, and the first dog peeing on my blouse at the same time. Ah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, doing my job, I've done everything. I flew on a plane out of Nepal where the pilot was barefoot. I have bathed myself out of a pith helmet in the jungles of Sumatra. I've been in some barely inhabited Micronesian island someplace in some crappy inch of the Pacific, and it was raining, and the bed fell down. We put the bed back up, and I went to sleep, and it was still raining. We moved the bed again. It kept raining, and now the bed fell apart, and there I was in this hotel room alone, wet. Listen, I spent the early days of Israel when it had just opened, where there was food and water rationing, and Golda Meir was prime minister. And they sent me into the Negev because my husband was raising funds for bonds for Israel. The Negev today is ablaze with food and vegetables and people. In those days, it was empty. There were only Arabs and princes of Arabs living there. And they made a feast in my my husband's honor. And the sheik gave me what was supposed to be a great honor. The honor? The eye of a sheep that I was supposed to eat. I don't know where the sheep was. The sheep was dead. But the eye of a sheep, it was large like a grape. I'm not going to eat the eye of a sheep. But they said, if you don't do it, you will offend the sheik. I said, listen to me, honey. I'm offending the sheep and the whole effing tribe. And I threw the eye out. But that was the early, early, early days. Okay. I'm in Thailand. I was a big traveler. I have traveled the whole world. Her Majesty, the Queen of Thailand, is my friend. I have been shopping for the Queen of Thailand. I have introduced her to Bloomingdale's. Her Majesty, the Queen of Thailand, gave me a Thai general in the Thai Air Force and a Thai army plane to fly me to Phuket. Do you remember when we had that tsunami in Phuket? It killed a girlfriend of mine, and the Queen of Thailand gave me a plane to fly to Phuket to find my girlfriend's body. My girlfriend was gone, and it was the Israeli army that found her body. And they found her because on her leg she had tattooed the state of Israel. Now, Israelis know how to look at dead bodies. 
they've had many dead bodies to look at, so they know how to go over every part of a body. They found my friend because on her hip was tattooed the state of Israel. Ah, I have so many stories. I have so many stories. I went to India with Judge Judy. Why? We wanted to see white tigers. We spent 10 days in a part of India to see white tigers. We never saw one. They must have heard about Judge Judy and thought she had a big mouth, and whatever it was, they disappeared. And we finally went back to our hotel and went home. That hotel, one week later, was bombed to destruction. That hotel. Listen, after all I've gone through, let me tell you about New York, the Natural History Museum. They took samples of my dog, Jazzy, Yorkshire Terrier, because he's a New Yorkie. I always have Yorkies. He's gone now. But this was long back. The Natural History Museum took samples of my DNA. They examined the samples. They took them to a lab. They examined the samples from my dog. And then they came up with the fact that our DNA, my dog and I, were five degrees apart. Listen, I'll be back in a minute. I'm getting tired. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, I've taken a breath, and now I'm going to think of a couple of more stories to tell you. I interviewed the Shah when he was in the hospital here. He was dying. I know the Shah because I had been a guest of his in his palace almost every year, for year after year after year. And it was the Shah and his family that got me out of his country when everyone took over and he was being overthrown. I didn't know what was happening. I was up country in Isfahan, a little town, and his sister, his twin sister, Princess Ashraf, had a hotel there. I was up there. I knew nothing that was going on. But all of a sudden, I was pulled out of that hotel. I was put onto a little bush plane. I was flown back to the capital city, and I was thrown onto a Pan-American jet and flown home. Those people who didn't make it out the way I did were then taken in by the Canadian ambassador, who was also my friend, And they finally made it out, eventually. And their story was made into a movie by Ben Affleck, and it was called Argo. And then there's my time with Sukarno, President Sukarno of Indonesia. He created the country out of 10,000 disparate islands. They were the Dutch East Indies. He made them into one country, Indonesia. And the people who approached him, approached him 
on their stomachs, flat on the floor. Me, I brought him hair dye from New York, and I tinted his hair black. I have done it all, and now I have done this all, and I am going home. And if you have any patience, listen to me again next Sunday from 1 to 2 on radio station WABC. This is Cindy Adams saying bye-bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.